Good morning. I love how uh, that sounds and how everybody's always like, uh, I think from now on, just go for it. Yeah, just go for it. Open that thing up. You got it. And I want to welcome you. I'm glad that you're here with us this morning. My name is Rob. If we haven't met, I'm one of the ministers here at New Hope. would love to meet you and your family. Uh, we're just glad that you're joining us. Way back at the beginning of the year in January, we started a sermon series walking through the book of Acts. And uh, we spent a lot of the year doing that. And we took a break in the summer. And in the summer months, we decided to go and preach from the Old Testament uh, in an effort, in a hope, that we would be teaching how you can see Jesus on every page of Scripture. And so uh, we did that all summer. And then today, we're going to jump back into the book of Acts. Now, if you're someone that likes to read ahead, which I get a lot of questions about, where are you going next? What are we reading next? We've been in Acts all year. I promise we're staying <laughs> It's Acts. Uh, but to give you a little more than that, uh, we're going to be uh, covering about a chapter a week. So you'll see where we're at today and then next week all the way through till Christmas, okay? So we're going to be starting in chapter 13 today. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it, chapter 13 in Acts. And each week we're going to cover a chapter until we finish up uh, the book of Acts at the end of the year. Now the hope in doing that is I want to remind you that uh, we believe uh, that God's word is infallible and perfect. We believe that it's true. We believe that it was given to us as a gift from him. And so when you come to church here, one of the goals that we have is we want to preach through the Bible. We just want to preach the text. And here, here's one of the reasons among many. I think, especially in 2020, given everything that's going on around us, and particularly in your lives around you, the most important voice that you could hear from in the midst of all of it is this. I just, I just believe with all my heart, you need to hear from God's word uh, more than you need to hear anything else. And so our commitment to you is to preach through scripture when you're here on Sunday mornings. Our hope is that that begins to develop in you an appetite for the Bible. Uh, I would even go as far as to say like an insatiable appetite for scripture. You just want to read the Bible. You want to spend time with God because of the way that he works through his word to you. And so today we're going to be in Acts chapter 13. Let's pray and we'll jump into uh, our sermon today. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for gatherings like this. Thank you that we can come together and we can hear from you. I just pray, Father, through the work of your Holy Spirit, you would communicate clearly to us this morning. Would you give us ears to hear what you would have to say to us as we turn our attention to your word? And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. What does it mean uh, to truly live? What does it mean to truly live? What does it look like to get to the end of your life and have somebody say about you, yeah, they lived. They lived their life. I don't know if you've seen the movie Secondhand Lions. Uh, it's, a, it's a movie uh, that I watched this weekend with my kids. We had a lot of laughs. It's a good movie. It's about these two grumpy uncles, these older guys. Uh, Robert Duvall and Michael Caine play the uncles. So you know it's going to be funny because they do it grumpy really well. And they're these grumpy older uncles whose nephew, their great nephew, gets dropped off at their house and they're kind of left to raise him. And the movie is about that struggle and about how they father this fatherless nephew that they have. So it's, there's kind of a, some profound elements to it there. They're just teaching him how to live. And they do so by telling stories of their life. And their life is something that's just not believable. But their stories are that they were from this small town in Texas, and they go off and they live all these adventures over in Africa. They fight in two different world wars. They chase down a princess and fall in love with the princess. And then one of the, you know, they, they fight a sheik, an evil sheik who has all of this money. And then somehow they end back up at their small town in Texas with millions of dollars in money hidden 
and they're not spending it, and they're just kind of sitting there grumpy on their front porch of this broke-down house when this nephew arrives. And throughout the movie, the nephew causes them to grow while he, they are causing him to grow. And, and the movie, is, it's funny, it's good, it's a good t- laugh with your family. You get to the end of the movie, though, and there's a scene where this young nephew, this young boy, is now grown and uh, gets a visit from someone who affirms all the stories he heard growing up. Check this clip out. Come here, buddy. Come here. Look at this. Look at this. Oh, forgive me. We were in Houston when we heard their names on the news and always just had to come. When I was a boy, my grandfather told me such stories. Your grandfather? Very wealthy sheik. He used to love to tell me stories about his wild youth. Amazing. Unbelievable stories all about two brothers helping Garth McCann, the most valiant and brave men, huh? He called them his most honored adversaries. (laughs) The only men who ever outsmarted me. (laughs) Wait, so you... You knew these two men? They they raised me. It's an honor. (laughs) (laughs) Nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you. Wow. Aha. Well, see, they spent my grandfather's gold wisely. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was this one traveling salesman. <laughs> so, the two men from Great Grandfather's Stories, they really lived? So, good movie, but a profound question. Did they really live? So what does it look like when we get to the end of our life for someone to say of us, yeah, they really lived? Let me reframe it for our context this morning. What does it look like to truly live, to really live for Christ? That we would get to the end of our lives and someone would look back and say, did they really live? Yeah, they, they were all in. They lived for Jesus. They poured out their life for him. So we jump back into the book of Acts, we're going to be reintroduced to a character we met back in chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus, who we would call Paul the Apostle after this chapter in particular. And we haven't seen him in quite a while. You see, he, he's, he, we meet him in chapter 9, he's mentioned in chapter 11, and really at the very end of chapter 12, if you look at chapter 12, verse 25, it says this, and Barnabas and Saul were turned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So now Saul of Tarsus, you remember Barnabas had to go up and find him up in Tarsus to bring him back down. And the question is, what, like, where has he been? If you study the timeline of Acts from Acts chapter 9 until you get to uh, chapter 13 where we're picking up today, there's 14 years. Saul's been out of commission for 14 years, supposedly. We haven't seen him in that long. Where has he been? 
That's the question to ask. Well, we know from the book of Galatians that he spent time in Arabia, learning from the ministry of Jesus. We know that he spent time in Damascus, and we also know that he was up in Tarsus for a while, and then he went down to Antioch as well. And so he he spent time in these places, but the question is, why? Why so long, and what was going on? The answer to that is, it's, it's relatively simple, yet really difficult for many of us to learn. It's this. Paul spent roughly 14 years becoming the person who could be entrusted with the life he was called to now begin living. Spent 14 years being prepared. He spent 14 years becoming. You've heard us say this around here numerous times, that while God is absolutely concerned with what you're doing with your life, he is far more concerned with who you're becoming. See, the the life of a Christian is is the life of becoming, constantly being shaped and constantly being molded by God as he prepares us. I mean, this is a theme in all of scripture. You remember Moses as he freed, before he freed the Israelites from the, from the slavery in Egypt. He spent 40 years in the desert. 40 years, God, why? Because Moses needed to be prepared to live the life he was now called to live. Look at Joseph, this young kid given a dream that his brothers and everyone else would bow down before him, that he would serve in some high capacity with lots of power and far too prideful to receive uh, the outcome of that dream when he received the dream itself. And so what takes place is 13 years of difficulty, 13 years of hardship, 13 years of being shaped and molded by his experiences to prepare him to do what God had called him to ultimately do. And it's no different here in the life of Saul. I mean, he spends 14 years being shaped and being molded. And he stands up in this chapter, he's going to preach a sermon. And we're going to break down that sermon into three pieces here in just a moment. But it really kind of speaks to why we gather together to begin with. I mean, a lot of people, you might be asking the question, maybe you haven't asked the question the way a lot of others have. But if I can get a sermon online in my living room and I can meet with close friends and I can go serve in, in my community, what's the point of gathering? Like, why come to this? Why be here? There's a lot to that. In fact, too much to answer in one sermon. Apart from, I would summarize it this way, there's something supernatural that God blesses when his people gather together. But there are a lot of things we do gather together for, and we're going to break it into these three sections in this sermon, but I want you to picture it this way. One of the things that Paul's going to teach us is that the the, the resurrection's true. It's factual. And so when we gather together, it is to be reminded that the resurrection absolutely happened. The resurrection is true. And he said, well, if the resurrection's true, what does that mean for you? And we come together and we're reminded of what the resurrection, the implications of the resurrection are on our life. Our bucket is being filled with this. And then he teaches us in this sermon, what are you supposed to do with what this resurrection has done for you? And so we come together and we're reminded of the life that we're called to go and to live. Because the moment we leave this place, we need to realize that our bucket has a hole. And our life is to be poured out for the benefit of others. But if we're not coming together to fill the bucket, if you will, we have nothing to offer to the world. We gather together. This is not just for fun and games. This is not to entertain. We've said this before. This is so much more than a stage and a seat on a Sunday morning. This is something else. We come together. We're to fill our bucket to be reminded that the resurrection is true. And if it's true, here's what it means for your life. And if that's what it means for your life, how are you supposed to go and live that life? Let's see how this, uh, this breaks down in the life of Paul, beginning in chapter 13, verses 2 and 3. It says these words. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord, this is uh, the, the Christians, the, the young church, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. So I want you to highlight that. If you underline in your Bible, I would encourage you. I mean, I'm telling you what to do, but you can underline or highlight that in your Bible because that's so key. The Holy Spirit then said to them, as a result of their fasting and praying, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and they sent them off. 
So what starts this entire thing off is it's very important for us to understand is the fasting and praying. As a matter of fact, one principle when you're reading your Bible by yourself and you're, you're just reading through scripture, here's something to remind yourself. If it's repeated, it's, remember this? I know it's been like 17, 18 weeks. If it's been repeated, it's important. And right here, Luke immediately, he repeats two things right here in just these first few verses. While they were fasting and praying, the Holy Spirit spoke to them. And so then fasting and praying, it was confirmed that they were to send them out. And so when the church gathers together, they fast and they pray. And when they did this, the Holy Spirit then spoke. The Holy Spirit then led them. And the Holy Spirit led them to say, Barnabas and Paul, we want to send you out on this, what we would call now the missionary journey to plant these churches, these gatherings where Christians will be able to come together, right? First, they're going to be evangelistic. They're going to lead people to Christ. And after these groups of Christians continue to meet, they'll be reminded of the resurrection, what the resurrection means and how to live it out. Constantly filling their buckets so that they're, they can be drained. But the other thing that drains the bucket, there's the hole in the bottom of the bucket. It's just life. We're going to see that in here too. I mean, what a year it's been. And if ever a year would drain our bucket, would deplete us, would leave us discouraged, it's this year. And so what is it that fills the bucket to prepare us to go back out and to not live as the rest of the world? Well, we're going to break that down here in this moment. So let, I, I do want to do this, though. The church was called to pray and to fast. There's a lot of prayer in the service today, unapologetically. We're going to pray at the end of the sermon. We prayed at the beginning. We're going to pray right here again. And we're going to ask God to speak clearly to us from this sermon that Paul preached. Let's pray. Father, again, we come to you. We need you. We cannot rely on the wisdom of man. We need you to speak to us. So to the work of your Holy Spirit, Father, would you give us ears to hear? Would you speak clearly to us from this message? And we ask for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. The sermon that Paul preaches, it's really beautiful. Succinct. It's inspiring. It kind of summarizes what the Christian should should understand about their life. And he He preaches that out. He lays out the gospel message for his audience in this synagogue. I think it's fascinating that he shows up in this synagogue and they would typically be reading the scriptures. So they would have read out loud the scriptures. And and then one of the leaders in the synagogue looks over at uh, Saul of Tarsus. And I think eventually would live to regret this. But he looked over and he said, hey, do you have anything encouraging that you'd like to share with everybody? Okay. And for me, this is just Rob speaking. This is that moment. 14 years shaped, molded, prepared. Here's that moment. It's time for me to step into this life he's called me to live. He's going to speak the gospel message to these Jews and these Greeks alike in this audience, and he's going to speak it clearly. And so he begins to lay it out using their history to inform them, to kind of draw them in. And then he kind of summarizes this. Look down at verse 30. Here's what he says. After explaining that Jesus had been killed unjustly, he says, but God raised him from the dead, And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to his fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. I love this because he does two things here. Right away, he lays out this sermon, these 33 some odd verses. He lays out the sermon. And then at the end of the sermon, he's essentially inviting them to be transparent. He's just saying, fact check me. Check it all out. Everything I've told you about Jesus, check it all out. And he does that in two ways. The first way is he says this, the resurrection actually happened and the witnesses to the resurrection are still walking around. Go talk to him. Now this would have been a very skeptical audience, these Jews, that somebody would have been raised from the dead, that somebody, a human being would have claimed to be God and then be raised from the dead. That that was just, uh, no, that's not going to happen. And yet he says, go talk to the witnesses. God rose him from the dead. 
But he says, in addition to that, read the scriptures. Because everything we've talked about today, he's telling them, everything that you read out loud in the synagogue today, he fulfilled it all. Find a prophecy that was not fulfilled in the life of Jesus. He's saying, go, check it out. What he's telling them is this. He's saying, you need to know before we go any further that this is the truth, that your sin separated you from God. And there was a sacrificial system in place that we all know about. This is what he would have said to his audience. We all know about that. But it couldn't do what we needed it to do. And so God sent his son, and he lived this perfect life, but we killed him unjustly. But that's all right, because God raised him from the dead, and in doing so, he fulfilled everything that we've been looking for. Again, a very skeptical audience. So here's my question for the audience that we have here today is this. What would it take for you to believe that? What would it take for you to have enough evidence for it to blow your doubts away, to say, yeah, Jesus really did raise from the dead. He really did. He really was resurrected. Because whatever evidence that you would require to believe that, they need it even more, I think. I mean, look at, look at the person sending the message. If ever a skeptic, Saul of Tarsus was a skeptic, so much so that he wanted to kill them all right? I don't like this. I don't believe this. This resurrection cannot have happened. And so let's go and kill everybody. I mean, that's, that's the life he lived. But when he became a Christian, he didn't become a Christian just because he liked it and it felt good. He came face to face with the truth that Jesus really did raise from the dead. It was that truth that began to change everything for him. Here's the deal. Like Christianity, it can be one of the most annoying religions in all the world. I get to teach this worldview class. I'm getting ready to start up my class actually here in a couple weeks. And uh, in this worldview class, we'll take a look at different philosophies and ideologies and religions even. And it's fascinating to look at all of them because uh, the question becomes, why do people follow these, these philosophies and these thoughts? Why do they follow these teachings? And as you study them, you, you check it out on your own. Uh, what you come to understand is, uh, how do they pick which one they want to believe in? And it's usually because they like it. I like what this has to teach. This really resonates well with me. I'm really kind of drawn into how good this one makes me feel. And shouldn't everybody feel this good? And I really like the way this one sounds. And so that, that's, by and large, how you pick the philosophy, the worldview, or the ideology that you're going to adopt. But, but Christianity doesn't allow you to do that. Because whether we like it or we don't like it, whether it makes us feel good or it doesn't make us feel good, Christianity hinges on the truth, the factual truth that Jesus did, in fact, raise from the dead. I heard one, pe- one preacher say it this way. He says, whenever he's approached by people who say, I can never become a Christian, he always says, well, why not? Why, why can't you be a Christian? He just kind of engages them, which I don't think they're prepared for. A gentle, kind response. Who would have thought? He says, well, wh- why not? Tell me why not. And they always say, well, I, I can't stand what you Christians stand for. What your Bible teaches, I don't like that. Man, I'm really opposed to that. I, in fact, that offends me. That offends what I think about life. I can't believe that you would say that. I, I'm offended by what you Christians teach. And rather than jumping in and getting defensive, he just says, well, let me ask you a question then. Are you saying that, that because you don't like it, then Jesus Christ could not have been raised from the dead? He said, 99% of the time, they said, no, no, that's not what I mean. I mean, look at Paul. If ever a skeptic, here's the guy who said, I don't like this. I don't think it's true. So I'm going to oppose it to the point where I'm going to go murder people which it's not advised. And then he comes face to face with the resurrected Jesus. And the truth of that resurrection hits him square in his face. And it's like, hey, this this is true. So this has to affect everything that I do. Here's the deal. Look, you need a religion, no matter where you're at, when you, if you can hear my voice, you need a religion. You need a purpose in life that goes beyond your own desires. It cannot simply be a projection of your desires. It can't be. 
then here's why. Because if all your philosophy of life, if your religion, if what you say is the purpose of life is simply a projection of your desires, what part of that is going to make you better tomorrow than you are today? How's that going to shape you and mold you and transform you? This is simply just what you want. It's all about you. It cannot be only about you. It must be founded on truth. And Christianity is, and it changes everything. When you come face to face with this, let me tell you, for, for me, I go through seasons of doubt. I don't know if you've followed Jesus and you've been there. Maybe you're like, no, I've never doubted. Well, bless your heart. The rest of us have, okay? <laughs> you go through seasons where it's a struggle to believe. Man, do I really believe this? Do I? And, and for me, when I, when I hit those days or even those seasons where doubt kind of creeps in, and let me pause and just say this. If that's you, you are not condemned for doubting. God welcomes that. But in those seasons of doubt and struggle, for me, one of the things that helps me is to come back to the factual historical truth that the resurrection happened. It's the starting place. It's the springboard for everything else. It changes everything. And Paul begins to explain that. Look down in verse 36. I know we're jumping around in this sermon, but there'll be a connection here. So the first thing he does is say, you must start with the truth of the resurrection. Everything starts with the truth that Jesus resurrected. He then moves on and says, and when that's true for you, it changes everything. Here's how it changes. Verse 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and saying he died. And he was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. So the corruption could mean his body corrupted and decayed, or he was a sinful person. He sinned and he wasn't perfect. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption, meaning Jesus, meaning his body didn't decay and, and he didn't stay dead. And also he was sinless. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So we start with the resurrection. The resurrection must be true. If the resurrection's true, and then you accept that invitation of the resurrection being true, and so here's what changes for you, everything in your life changes. Let me explain it this way. If I'm going to live as though the resurrection's true, I'm going to live one way. And if I'm going to live as though it's not, I'm going to live another way. So let's say I, I live as though the resurrection is true. That's my starting place. The resurrection is true. And because of that, my sins have been forgiven. And because of that, my entire life has changed. Now, every decision I make is going to be influenced by that truth. If it's, I mean, think, resurrection. This isn't like, you know, what, do you, what football team do you like? Well, if I like the Colts, then I'm going to make a decision. But no, this is much bigger. This biggest question in life, Jesus resurrected from the dead, and so now all my decisions are influenced by this, which means when I approach my marriage, I'm going to allow my marriage to be influenced by the fact that I believe that the resurrection is true and I believe that my sins have been forgiven so I'm going to live differently within my marriage. I'm going to raise my children differently because that is now the filter by which everything comes through. Jesus resurrected from the dead. That resurrection has changed everything in my life and so now these decisions, I'm going to handle my money differently. I'm going to handle the ability to forgive other people, not to take things so personally. I'm going to walk around in a society that is falling apart and not be scared. Ultimately, not scared of death, because I know, because Jesus resurrected, that he who was powerful enough to raise him from the dead will also raise me. And so I live with no fear. If I die, I know what's going to happen, because I really do believe Jesus resurrected from the dead. On the flip side, if I come over here and I don't believe that, I don't believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead, well, then I'm going to make decisions based on that. Namely, what do I like and what makes me feel good? So I'm going to approach my marriage. If you're not treating me right, then we're going to develop this thing called no-fault divorce. And then I'm going to move on to this other thing. And, and it just begins to spiral out of control. We're going to make all of these decisions based on what we like and what we want. And death, well, you better believe I'm going to live in fear of death because I have no idea what's going to happen when I die. So I better make the most of every moment right now and make, it, make me happy. 
You see, this changes. This is a game changer. We live whether the resurrection is true or the resurrection is not true. And he says that changes everything. So the life that I live can either be an adventure in grace or a long day at work where I'm constantly trying to earn my way. See, Paul, or Saul, in this moment, preaching this sermon, connects it back to uh, Psalm 15, which is the same thing that Peter did in Acts chapter 2. He connects it to, to, back to the life of King David. And he says, King David, who we revere, and for good reason we revere, a man after God's own heart, he'll explain in this sermon. He, he was just favored by God. He did so many incredible things, but when he died, guess what? He stayed dead. So he couldn't save you. And he said, but the one that God raised... When he went into the grave, unjustly, not deserving, seeing no corruption, he didn't stay dead. God raised him from the dead. And now, because of that, forgiveness of sins is being offered to everybody who wants to accept the truth of that, that he did resurrect from the dead. And when that happens, you don't have to earn your way anymore. This is the best part. He says he's going to free you from what the law of Moses couldn't free you from. You've heard me say this many times. I just wanted to stick in your head. The law of Moses, all the rules and regulations that they had to live by in order to bring God uh, a, a substitution for all of their sins. They had a sacrificial system. They went through all these things. That was an MRI. You, you ever had an MRI? An MRI, you get sent into this super crazy machine. I don't like it. Uh, I, you just sit in this machine and you sit still and then they yell at you when you move or you twitch. or you have, you know, Everything itches when you go in an MRI machine. Just so you know, like you go in, everything starts itching because you just want to move, right? And then they take a 45-minute picture of whatever is hurt. They bring it back and they slap the picture up on the screen and they say, hey, that's what's wrong with you. And what you don't say is then put me back in the machine. It'll fix what the MRI has told me is wrong. No. See, the law in the, in the Bible was an MRI. It showed us what was broken and it couldn't fix it. Said the law is just an MRI, it just shows you you're broken. You're sinful. You can't be with God. But God raised him from the dead to fix what the MRI or the law showed you was wrong, that you couldn't get right. And now you get to live in that freedom. Think of it this way: let's say you go into a department store, right? You go shopping, right? All the guys are like, yeah, I love shopping, right? You go in, you're buying hunting gear, and you buy some, okay? And uh, you get it in a bag, you get your receipt, but you forget, I got to go back in the store, and I got to shop for some other things I totally forgot. And so what do you want to make sure that you have with you in that bag? You want the receipt. You walk back into the store with the receipt, because if you're walking through shopping for something, and someone sees that you have stuff in a bag, and they say, hey, what is that? And you don't have a receipt, they say, well, you don't get to leave with it. That's not yours. You have to pay for that again, because we can't prove that you bought it. The same thing's true in life. Like we, there's so many things in our lives that we carry with us that are just broken, that we've, we've been paying. Many of us have the hardest time with grace because, man, we've made so many bad mistakes that just continually carry with us. And we think to ourselves, I couldn't forget that. If I can't forget it, how on earth could God forget that? I can't forgive myself for that struggle. How's God going to forgive me for that struggle? Look at how Martin Luther describes this. He says this, if you're suffering... If you're going through dark times, if you're facing death, and in the midst of all of that, you're not absolutely sure that God is for you. And in the midst of all that, you're not sure that God accepts you. In the midst of that, you're not absolutely sure that all of your sins have been paid for and that you're going to get to go be with God. Well, if that's it, if you don't know that that is true, then the knowledge of a bright future, if you're not certain of all of this, is of no consolation to you. See, the resurrection is the greatest receipt of all time in all of human history. It's a receipt that says, hey, those sins, paid for. 
You can walk through this life and all of history can look at the sins that you've been carrying with you and they can say, you're not paying for those a second time because you have the greatest receipt ever. Jesus resurrected from the dead. Your sins have been forgiven and you get to live in that freedom, that new life. It's an invitation. It's an invitation. So what does it mean to truly live? What does it mean to really live? What does it mean for people to look back at the way that we've lived our lives and say, yeah, man, they really lived. Well, it's accepting this invitation. Acts chapter two tells us that when we're baptized into Christ, you stand in that water, you're lowered into that water and you die in a grave. That watery grave is your old life. You're raised up, the Bible says. Acts chapter two, verse 38 says, and in that moment, your sins are forgiven. You get to live this new life of forgiveness, but it also says this other thing. It says your sins are forgiven, and then this other part we don't talk a lot about. It says you also receive this gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit that will live inside of you. And that Holy Spirit, as you live this new life, will guide your steps. He's gonna work powerfully in you and around you and through your church. And it says, but one of the primary ways he does that, according to John chapter 16, is that he brings to the front of your mind the word of God. So when you need to make those decisions and you need to live that life and you need to filter everything through the lens of Jesus did resurrect, you need to have adequately filled your bucket with the word of God so that when the Holy Spirit goes to draw from that bucket, there's something there. And this is how Paul lived. Look at this. Look at verse 50. All the way down to verse 50. He says this. But the Jews, this is what Luke is telling us, the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, he, they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. And so they, they stir up all kinds of trouble. Some people wanted to hear the message and some people accepted the message. Other people did not want to hear the message and so they begin to persecute him. And guess what? The same is true for us. We start living this Christian life. Some people want to see it. Some people want to hear it and other people don't want to hear it. And the apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, his old response to that type of rejection would have been, let's turn around and let's do a James and John on this place and call some fire down from heaven. And we'll teach you who was right and who was wrong. His zealous spirit would have brought him back into that city. But this is not the same man. Something changed him. And instead, his response, look at verse 51. He says, but, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and they moved on to Iconium. He says, instead of getting all angry and frustrated, they did, and I wonder who taught him this, shake the dust off your feet. And a lot of spirits just move you to what's next. And it says, as a result of this, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit filled more and more of their lives. I want you to notice that this chapter is bookended with the role of the Holy Spirit. Your Bible might say at the front of the book of Acts, Acts of the Apostles, and that's not the greatest title for this book. The book would better be titled Acts of the Holy Spirit. He's the star. He just doesn't like the spotlight. And the same thing's true in your life. He's going to move you and powerfully work in your life. He just doesn't want the recognition. He's humble. And so in verse 3, it says that they were fasting and praying. The Holy Spirit led them. And at the end of it, they, they, they did what they could. And they trusted God with the consequences of it. We're going to live the life the best way we can. And God, you take it from there. And then we're going to dust, the feet, the dust our feet off and move on to the next city. And as a result, the Holy Spirit moved powerfully among them. Let me illustrate it for you this way. What does it look like then? So we, we start with the resurrection is true. We move into this second piece of, man, that's, I, I live a forgiven life, but then how do I actually live that out? What does it look like for the Holy Spirit to begin to lead me? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite you to my back porch to one of our family devotions. But I need to do a disclaimer. This one was great. They're not all great. Okay. Half the time it's discipline and then devotions, right? Sit down and listen to God, right? Like, oh Lord, forgive me, please work powerfully because it's not happening. Uh, and that's a lot of the time when we're doing devotions. So I'm just being really honest with you and some of you are shaking your head like, yes, others aren't shaking your head, but you know it's true, okay? 
And, and we're sitting on our back porch, though. This is one that was just wonderful. And it's a really windy night. And I sat out there for that reason. The wind was blowing hard. And we have this young tree in our backyard. It's not a strong tree yet. And if, if you know that, you know this, that it, a young tree needs the wind. They require the wind to deepen the roots. So we had a discussion around that. But then you look beyond it, we have a pond out back. And the wind is blowing hard on the water to the point where you can see it moving on the water. And this was, this was what I wanted to make the point of, to the kids. As I said, look at John chapter 3, verse 8. And Jesus says, the spirit blows where he will. We don't know where he's going. I said, look at the wind. You see how it's moving the tree and it's moving the waves. You can't see the wind. But man, you know it's working. You know it's moving powerfully. And I said, the same thing's true of the Holy Spirit in our lives. As we submit ourselves to him. You won't see him. He doesn't like to be seen, but you'll know he's moving. And you're going to know he's moving powerfully. I, I, I use this analogy, and I use it with you today. It's this idea of a sailboat. See, as Christians, Apostle Paul and all that, we're, we're just called to, to be a sailboat, to live in a sailboat, meaning we hold the sail. My only job, I hold the sail, and the Spirit will push where he wants me to go. Here's the problem. Lots of us like to pull out a paddle. God, I know you're leading this way, but man, that looks a little bit more. Let's just start paddling, and we wear ourselves out trying to control it. Paddle, paddle, paddle. And the Bible's saying, no, clearly, just hold up the sail and let the Spirit blow where it will. Yeah, the resurrection's true, and yes, you live a free life, and that free life just says, let me lead you. May it be said of us, when people look back at us, did those Christians at New Hope, did they really live? Oh, man, yeah, they really lived. They just held up the sail and let the spirit move. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gathering of your church. Thank you so much for this place, these people. I love, I love this church. God, more importantly than all of it is thank you for the resurrection this morning. Man, may it just sink in deep and not be lost on us the most influential, important moment in all of human history changed everything for us, God. May we live as though we have that receipt. May we walk in grace. May we hold up the sail. May we allow our bucket to be filled so we can be poured out as an offering to you on, the, on behalf of other people, for other people. God, thank you so much for this morning, for the time of worship, and as we shift our attention to a time of prayer, Father, may it be a sweet aroma to you, may it be a blessing to you, and we ask for this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,